Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of the Nails and Ortho podcast. I am Dr. Cole, myself, and Dr. Fitz. Started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic topics, and we have a good one in store for you today. Today is actually one of the hashtag lost files that we have just recovered not too long ago. An episode with Dr. Angelo Dacus that we recorded a couple of years ago, back in 2018, it's 2021 now. And we talk about flexor tendon injuries for those that have that are new to the show that haven't heard the episodes of myself and Jay Fitz. And for those that are longtime listeners who have heard the episodes with both of us together and then have heard the ones with just myself, this is we are taking you down memory lane to back when Jay and I were doing episodes together. And this is again a episode talking about flexor tendon injuries. A little bit more about Dr. Dacus. He did his residency in orthopedic surgery at Emory University School of Medicine. He did his fellowship in hand surgery at the University of California, San Diego. He is a current program director for UVA Health. And again, that's going to be for orthopedic surgery. And again, so in this talk, we talk about flexor tendon injuries. We talk about how to examine them in the ED, um, what to look for for repair, what makes a good outcome or things that you can do to help these patients have better outcomes overall. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Dacus and do not forget to hit the subscribe button and go and leave a review in iTunes Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to us, please go and leave a review. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Dagus, thank you uh, so much for being on the show. We want to welcome you and have our listeners have their ears wide open uh, to listen to this wealth of knowledge that is about to be imparted onto all of us. So welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And um, so kind of what we, we love to do is we typically start off by asking a couple questions, just getting to know you, and then we get into the topic of the day, which today we're going to talk about flexor tendon injuries, you know, something that uh, we see a lot, definitely if you take a lot of hand call, depending on what type of a program people are at. This is something that they'll see many, many times. So um, kind of the first question, just to get to know you a little bit, is um, say if you could go back in time and and give yourself yourself advice at age 25, what would you say to yourself? (laughs) Um, Going to finance. (laughs) I got to say, why that? Those are the things I would tell myself at that time. Going to finance, do you have any uh, any tips as far as, you know, what you would say? I'd Some say of our listeners may be 25. Invest in Apple. That's what I would have done <laughs> at that time. Oh, yeah, that would have been a smart move for yeah, sure. <laughs> good right now. Um, great. So so what book have you gifted the most or, or told other people to read the most? Probably, oh, man, that's a tough one. I usually don't give books away. I give I give orthopedic books away most commonly. <laughs> we got Millers and uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, I give OKUs away all the time, you know. Right. Um, 
you know, I probably, uh, you know, um, probably some of the Malcolm Gladwell books. I think, uh, I think those are easy reads. They give you some insight. I think they're, uh, they're kind of behavioral to some extent, kind of gives us an idea of how we ended up where we are. You don't want to give somebody something too heavy, but you want to give them something to make them think a little bit. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. And I think Dr. Fitz here has a question as well that he wants to ask. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, we are pretty heavy about orthopedics and everything on our podcast, but for you outside of orthopedics, what are some of your hobbies or something, some of your interests? Uh, so, you know, I, I like to travel, uh, try and go somewhere new every year. A lot of that didn't happen until I got into practice because I couldn't afford to. But um, my dad was military, so he moved around a lot. So I kind of caught the bug early. Um, I play a lot of sports. I play just about every sport you possibly could play. Um, and uh, still try and play them on a, on a level where I think I can be competitive. <laughs> uh, so that, you know. I, I tore my ACL two years ago playing wow. rec basketball, so I don't really, I don't really hoop with the young guys anymore. <laughs> but, I was uh, just about to ask you if you tore something because you know it's a stereotypical orthopedic story. Somebody tore something uh, when in orthopedics, but so did you tear something before orthopedics or just now was your first time ever having an injury? Not, well, you know, I, my story of how I became a hand surgeon is kind of unique. Um, I broke I broke my finger playing football when I was in eighth grade. And uh, I saw a guy who uh, I think, you know, he treated me in a way where I, I probably resented a little bit later on. And uh, as I got into orthopedics, I looked back on that time and felt that if I was, was going to be that surgeon, I would, I would treat somebody a little bit differently. And I think that kind of spurned a lot of my interest. Um, <clears throat> just because, I, you know, I still – I still notice that finger, you know, and so I've obviously been able to do everything I want in life, but it's just one of those things that has an impact on you somehow. And so um, outside of that, I was pretty healthy, to be honest. I played, uh, I played football and baseball and never really had any major injuries. I was pretty fortunate. Man, that's, that's great. I know a lot of people that can't say that. Um, so that's glad that you can, that you can say that and, you know, that you've been kind of injury free for most of your life. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and on that same on that same question, before we go, because I happen to know that uh, Dr. Cole here, he's a world extraordinaire. He goes all over the place. So, <laughs> what's some of the the most interesting places that you've visited? Uh, see, I'd probably say Singapore. Singapore was uh, did Singapore and Indonesia. That was a pretty fun trip. Um, you know, Italy was great. Um, we uh, spent time in Rome, did Naples and Capri, and that was uh, that was my first trip when I got into practice. I went with all my friends who didn't go into medicine, mm-hmm. so uh, they uh, they had had their money a while while before I did. So uh, I was finally able to get on a trip with them, which was fun. Um, I just went to the Canadian Rockies uh, in July, which was amazing. Uh, went up to Banff and uh, Jasper, and uh, that was that was that was beautiful. That was gorgeous. Uh, Man, that's awesome. Uh, Singapore, I used to, you know, I, I'm going to get off topic now and start talking about Singapore. We're supposed to be talking about injury. <laughs> but how, if my mind, what, what, you know, what, do you have like a favorite experience that you had at Singapore? Because, you know, I've always wanted to go to that side of the country. Yeah. Um, so one of, my, one of my best friends from college lives there. 
and uh, for his 40th birthday, we went out and um, it's kind of Asia light. You know, it's not, you know, a lot of people speak English. Um, it's a fairly affluent city or country. So um, a lot of stuff was pretty easy, but, um, but we took a ferry over to Indonesia and, uh, and that was, that was enlightening in a number of ways. Um, you know, the first time I saw a whole family on a scooter riding down the street, you know, mom, three kids, you know, all on the scooter with the baby on the back. <clears throat> um, that was, that was unique. That was, um, you know, and I think being in that, you know, I being in the ocean out there and uh, kind of experiencing that and fishing and just, um, it was something quite different. You know, I think it was, uh, it, you know, it's a different day. You know, I was over there and it was a completely different day. So it was, uh, it was the NFL playoffs and it was, uh, the Packers were playing the Seahawks and it was, uh, literally the Seahawks were down and they came back and won that game. And, um, it was, uh, we were watching it at three in the morning trying to, <laughs> trying to keep track of the game. Cause it was just the time difference was so much. Uh, but it was, uh, it was pretty fun. It was legit. Man, that sounds, sounds like a blast, man. That sounds like a good time right there. So, um, all right, well, perfect, man. I guess we can go ahead and transition and, and transition into our, topic of the choice or topic of the day-to-day and we want to talk about flexor tendon injuries and how we can uh how how do we manage these patients or how do we assess these patients correctly and, and come up with a uh, a formulated uh treatment that is that'll optimize a patient so as all things we kind of want to start out with a case and so the case that we have um so say we're in the ed or we get a consult and we have say a 34 year old male presents to the ed you know, he got in a fight with his girlfriend where she got a knife, cut him on the palmar aspect of his hand. Now he has pain in his hand and, you know, a pretty big laceration. What are some of the things we want to be on the lookout for when we're getting a history and then we're doing, when we're doing a physical exam? So I think the, the, first, uh, the first thing on the exam is you want to make sure the fingers are perfused. Uh, you know, a laceration volally, if it's deep enough, can affect the uh, arterial supply. So you want to check for perfused fingers. Uh, the next is, which is, I think is important from a repair standpoint, was was the hand closed or was it open when uh, the laceration happens? That changes the zone of injury. Uh, you also want to know where the laceration is. So is it in the palm? Is it over the finger, over the proximal phalanx, which would be zone two? Um, is it more distal? Um, and then you want to kind of look at the positioning of the hand. So if that finger compared to the other fingers, you want to look at the resting position of it. So if it's, if it's not resting with a little bit of flexion, that gives you a good hint that uh, it's likely that the flexor tendon is injured. Um, you know, I think those are kind of ways to start. Obviously, get a sensory exam, too, because uh, if there's an arterial injury, high likelihood of a nerve injury. Um, and then, uh, you know, then the baseline stuff for that patient in particular, their hand, uh, what's their dominant hand, what's their occupation, um, what is, uh, have they had their tetanus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if, it's a, if it's something that can be sutured closed, is the wound a large wound that can't be sutured primarily? Is it a contaminated wound? Um, obviously, if it's, if it's one that can be cleaned out and sutured closed, Splinting them in the position of function uh, and uh, antibiotics, tetanus, and early follow-up. So uh, these aren't injuries that you see in two to three weeks. These are injuries you see the same week. 
because you have, a, you have a specific time frame in which doing a repair is feasible. Once you get outside about the three week window, it becomes a lot more challenging. Right. And so, you know, a lot of things that you just said, we, we want to talk on is just like, for example, the, uh, the zones, can you, can you kind of touch on the different zones of the hand and kind of what, what you're talking about for the people listening that may not have, you know, done the hand rotation or, or started uh, in their, you know, orthopedic uh, in their training? Sure. You know, I think uh, the fundamental zones that you always hear about and you're concerned about is, is zone two, the so-called no man's land. Um, and that's because historically it was a zone that uh, repairs didn't do very well. Um, you know, we've done a lot better uh, with flexor tendon repairs with rehab protocols, et cetera, but it's still a very common area where you get adhesion. So zone one is kind of distal to the FDS. Uh, zone two is uh, proximal, um, proximal to that, but distal to the lumbrical insertion. Zone three is kind of mid palm. Zone four is the carpal tunnel. Um, and then zone five is at the wrist. So these zones kind of have some importance because of the positioning of the tendons. The, the tendon position in the carpal tunnel is quite different, particularly for the FDS. Um, and, then, uh, and then obviously there's, there's a change in position of the flexor tendons from the palm into the finger as you go through campus chiasm. So the FDP goes from dorsal to volar. And then that zone two, because it's in the flexor sheath, there's a, there's a crowding effect. And so um, when you repair both tendons in zone two, the glide, so the resistance to glide changes. And so the potential for gap formation of the repair or potential for adhesion goes up. Um, so, so zone one injuries, those are your kind of jersey finger type scenario. Um, so primarily it's only FDP. Uh, those repairs, while they can be um, a little bit easier than zone two, can also be difficult because you have the A5, the A5 and A4 pulleys that are involved there. Uh, and if there's a bony fragment, that changes things as well. Uh, Jersey finger, uh, one being the worst out of the three, um, which is counterintuitive as well. So that's where the, the tendon is all the way into the palm. Um, <clears throat> uh, zone two, a lot of scenarios, uh, the laceration is right at the distal portion of FDS, gets FDP and FDS um, right at kind of the A3 pulley area. Uh, and so we use A3 pulley as our vent for our approach uh, because A2 and A4, um, from a pulley standpoint, provide resistance to bowstring. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going way down a rabbit hole here. So I'm, you keep I'm going. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Yeah. Well, um, so could you explain the pulley system and kind of its use uh, when we're looking at, at hand anatomy and how we, how we should relate that to how we treat different patients like what like what is this sure. pulley system so uh so the pulleys the pulleys function is uh, is actually an interesting function so um they're on the volar side you have you have a1 through 5 uh the a1 pulley most commonly known uh noted because of its contribution to trigger finger um is one that's released commonly without any consequence <clears throat> it's it's the thickest of the pulleys but a, A2 is probably the longest, most broad of the pulleys. And that one goes over the proximal phalanx. Um, and what a pulley does in the hand is that it keeps the tendon close to bone. By doing that, it increases the rotational moment at a joint. So if the tendon comes away from bone, the joint doesn't rotate as much. You get more power, 
because your moment arm changes, but you don't get as much rotation. So the pulley keeps the tendon close to the bone to allow you to get full flexion. Um, so if you lose the pulley, full flexion isn't attainable. Um, there's a lot of talk about A2 pulley ruptures and rock climbers uh, and how they actually prefer it because they have a stronger grip on the rock because there's more force through the pull. Um, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't work very well for day-to-day -day life. For, for that particular activity, it does work quite well. Um, the A3, the odd number pulleys are over joints. So one is MCP, uh, three is PIP, and five is DIP. Um, the, uh, the ones over the bone tend to have more resistance to bowstringing. So a lot of the pulleys that we tend to open are going to be one, three, and five. Um, and those are common areas where we do our repairs. Um, the, uh, the pulley system is different for the thumb. You have an A1 pulley and an oblique pulley, which are your primary pulleys there, and then uh, an A2 distal. Um, so the thumb is different on a number of levels from the other fingers. But when you're primarily talking about um, the other digits, the index through small, you're looking at two tendons in a pulley system where A2 and A4 have the most value. Um, now there is some discussion about releasing a portion of A2. You can release about 50% of that and keep the function. Uh, and so if you have a situation where the excursion is limited, you can release some of A2 to give you excursion, but after 50%, you compromise the, uh, the integrity of the pulley. And while we're on that, um, I know a lot of there's often a lot of talk about the annular pulley system like we were just mentioning. Can you just mention uh, or just briefly state maybe the purpose of like the cruciform pulleys? I've always heard about them, but never had a very mm -hmm. good understanding. So um, they to me are just an anatomical discussion. Um, they're hard to see. To be honest, I couldn't point one out if we opened a finger up. Um, their value is is at the joint itself somewhat limited. Um, you know, it's an augmentation of, of the, the A, the annular pulley sheath. Um, it doesn't, um, it is one of those things anatomically that's hard to identify in real life. How, when you, when you examine the, these patients, you know, and, and we're looking at them in the, in the ER, do you look for any type of tenodesis or do you, do you test, do you try to test a different, uh, the different uh, tendons themselves, like the FDP, FDS, or, you know, what, what type of thing, what type of things do you make, you want to make sure that you get on every exam? Sure. So, so it's, it's fundamental to document certain things. The first of which things are you can do without ever touching the patient, right? So you can look at where the laceration is. You can also look at the resting tone of the finger. So if the finger is resting in flexion, there's a good likelihood the tendons are intact. <clears throat> if the tendon is, is resting in a fully extended position, it's likely that the tendons have been lacerated. The next thing is tenodesis. So with wrist extension, you should get some passive flexion of the, uh, of the IP joints of the fingers. So if you extend the wrist and there's no passive flexion of that digit, another indication that likely the tendons are not attached. Uh, and it's key to document all these things. Um, it may be difficult to get the patient to actively flex uh, in the emergency room because of pain, because of bleeding, because of fear. Um, there are some that will do a digital block 
to try and eliminate the pain component and see if they can actively flex. This is important um, for partial injuries. So if you have a laceration that's less than 50%, a lot of times there's a discussion about not doing a repair. Biggest concern with that is triggering. So, um, so that tendon obviously has a free flailed end, and so it's possible that you can get triggering. But the book answer says less than 50% laceration, you can treat that without surgery. Or if you do do surgery, you can just debride it, and you don't have to do a formal repair. Now, can um, you typically do these downstairs in the ED, or do you need to go to the, to the OR and you know, book a case? So flexor tendon injuries in general are difficult to do in the, in the emergency room. Uh, extensor tendon injuries, um, I'm a big proponent of, of if you can see both ends of the tendon doing a repair in the emergency room, because I think it's from an economic standpoint for the patient, has a lot of value, and I think the repairs are fairly straightforward. Uh, flexor tendon injuries, because of the retraction with the laceration, I think it's much more of a challenge in the emergency room, so I don't, I don't advise that. <clears throat> um, if you're exploring a wound and you see a partial injury, but the majority of the tendon is intact, um, there's, there's no downside to, to trimming that portion uh, of the tendon, but you're, you're going to be deep in the hand at this point. And especially if you're down there by yourself, that's, uh, that's not a type of procedure that, that's going to, that's going to be a short type procedure. That's going to consume a lot of your time. Uh, and a lot of times uh, I think our preference is to just wash it out, close it up and let us manage it on a, on, a, uh, on an outpatient basis. So if we're looking at it, you know, if we're looking at a treatment now, how do you go about, cause you just, you just spoke about, you know, we look to see whether how much of the, of the tendon is, is, uh, is destroyed or not. Like how, how else do you go about looking at treatment uh, in flexor tendon injuries? Do you go by zone? Do you go by the amount of the tendon involved or how do you, how do you guide where you go? Well, I think, uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, your exam is, tends to be pretty straightforward. Um, if they have a, they have a volar laceration, um, it's, it's very infrequent that you're, you're going to have an injury where the diagnosis isn't that clear. Um, and so the times where the diagnosis isn't clear, uh, those are times where it's probably limited based on pain um, or, uh, or, or some other modalities at which sometimes a delayed examination kind of gives you some value. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times when people start bleeding and they show up to the emergency room, all, all, all bets are off. Uh, it's hard to kind of really kind of rein them in on the history. It's hard to rein them in on, on actually getting them to move the finger, and particularly in a child. Uh, in a child, a lot of times you can't get them to actively obey anything that you ask them to do. Uh, so it really is a lot of visual cues and to some extent, maybe just a delayed exam. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's hard to put sutures in in kids in the emergency room as well without some sort of sedation. Uh, in general with children, uh, absorbable suture is advisable. Um, as someone who's had to take out stitches in kids in clinic, <laughs> <That's not fun. laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, I think, you know, in patients that you can't get accurate volitional kind of response, um, a lot of it is kind of what the visual cues give you. So the tenodesis component, things like that. Um, <clears throat> children will tend to kind of not use that hand for a period of time, even if the tendon's intact, <laughs> and then they'll start using it later. So 
Um, so they're, they're a little bit tougher. And sometimes you have to get sedation in order to be able to get a good exam on a kid. And I know that we pretty much said most flexor tendon injuries, you know, you probably would do better with going to the OR from the ED uh, due to, you know, tendons retracting and it might take a more extensive uh, incision and different things like that. Uh, but since we're, we're on this discussion and it happens so frequently, uh, does the ED, um, what you do in the ED change at all for if there's any a, a artery damage versus a, a nerve damage along with this tendon? So it's all based on perfusion. If the finger's perfused, even if there's a, a digital nerve and artery laceration, but the finger's perfused, you can treat that in a delayed fashion. Uh, there's no urgency to get that to the OR that night. Um, a lot of flexor tendon repairs and treatments are dealer's choice. Uh, there are some faculty that will come in at nighttime and do those. I'll say that the majority of people will treat them in a delayed manner. Even arterial repairs can be done in a delayed manner for uh, digital uh, vessels, but the digital nerve in particular can be treated delayed. So it's really revolves around perfusion of the finger. If it's a crush injury, if there's a fracture involved, if there's concern about perfusion, that tends to dictate a lot more of the urgency than uh, just the laceration and, and the isolated digital artery injury. Okay. And just out of curiosity, since we kind of mentioned the nerves, you know, briefly, do you, do you often see sometimes where you, you might suspect that a, a nerve was, was injured uh, during a, from a laceration and maybe they have, uh, the patient has a motor, some motor of that nerve, but, you know, lacking uh, sensation or, you know, it's not always like a complete picture. Mm -hmm. So, so you're probably talking more proximal here as far as injuries um, in the fingertip, it's uh, the finger itself. It's all sensory, but um, you can a lot of times have a neuropraxia. You can have a scenario where people will have numbness and uh, over the course of a week or two, that can resolve. Um, so if the motor is intact and it's a sensory component, um, particularly in a mix, I mean, if it's a mixed nerve and the sensory is out, but the motor is intact, um, you can wait on that and, uh, and, and monitor that and see, um, particularly if it's a, you know, if the wound's closable, et cetera. Um, I think your big concerns are when motor and sensory are out, um, particularly when you're kind of proximal to the wrist, you know, particularly on the ulnar side. Um, you know, ulnar nerve injuries can be uh, quite poorly, uh, poorly accommodated, uh, even with urgent repair. So, uh, so there's a lot of value to treating those more acutely. Yeah. Now, when you talk about, you know, we have these injuries and now we, we look and we say, okay, this is something that we're going to repair. Do you have a, is there a specific suture technique that you use or are you just kind of just approximating both ends or any, you know? Yeah. I mean, there, um, you know, if you read the books, there are a million ways to fix flexor tendons and there are new techniques coming out all the time. Um, the fundamentals are, um, you know, are opposition are grasping suture um, that is about a centimeter back from the, the edges. Um, I use a, Kessler, a modified Kessler 
it's the number of strands as well. Um, so a minimum of four strand repair. The more strands, the more suture material, the more risk of adhesion. I also use an epitendinous suture. So I use a 6-0 epitendinous suture. Uh, you can do a running. I use a technique called a silver scold. It basically looks like finger traps. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's been well documented that an epitendinous suture increases the strength of the repair, even if it's a 6-0 suture. It also smooths out the repair, so it allows for better gliding. Um, so, so for me, I use a four-strand with a, with a 6-0 six, epitendinous suture. I use a 3-0 suture for my four-strand. Um, I have done a number of different types of scenarios. I've used a 2.0 fiber wire most recently. In the case, um, <clears throat> I've used a 4.0 suture and a six strand. Um, a lot of it is based on gapping, it's based on the patient's healing, and it's based on your rehab protocol. Your rehab protocol has a lot of value, but some patients develop scar quickly and some don't. And the ones that scar quickly have to be moved more quickly and have a higher risk of having a stiff finger. And you can't predict that beforehand because you don't know someone's history before they walk through the door. Um, so a lot of it is still kind of a management in real time as therapy is ongoing. So you want your repair to be stable to accommodate motion, um, almost an active motion protocol early if possible. Okay. And so uh, say if, during this laceration, there happened to be, um, let's just say FDS and FDP are both, um, are both injured. Uh, would you go about, you know, would you act for the same finger? We'll say for the same, for the same digit. Um, would you go about actually repairing them both at the same time or? So um, <clears throat> it depends. So if it's a zone two injury, but it's really distal in the FDS. So we're looking at where the FDS flattens out. So as it rotates uh, through campus chiasm, it lays flat on the proximal phalanx, each, each uh, strand of it. So, it's, um, <clears throat> so you have a scenario, if it's very distal, you have basically two flat pieces of tendon that are uh, basically attached to the middle phalanx. <clears throat> uh, so at that, at that scenario, your repair could be a little bit, um, less satisfying so to speak mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of times it will depend on the amount of bulk that the repair requires so fd fdp repaired at all times without without question fds occasionally would be a one strand repair so uh, repair one of the slips of fdp uh, that way you decrease the bulk in that area allow for tendon gliding um, so um so a lot of it that a lot of it depends on that um, now the so if if we move on to you know now this this patient we had a patient um they had a tendon uh they had a tendon injury and we repaired it now what do we how do you go about rehab do you and also do you put them in a splint do you have them in like any type of a volar resting splint and do you have mm -hmm. them you know early mobilization you know at the at the m c p s or or um like you know how do you typically go about uh, rehabbing these patients with flexor uh, tendon injuries. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I put everyone in a dorsal block splint. So um, post-op, they're in a, a wrist of a, a splint with the wrist in 30 degrees of flexion, the MPs in 90 degrees of flexion. Uh, 
Um, I leave them in that until they're, till they start in therapy. I start therapy three to five days after surgery. Uh, they also go in a dorsal block splint at that point in time as well. Uh, the repair protocols, I think, depend somewhat on your therapist, somewhat on your patient and your patient compliance, and somewhat on your repair. So there's a lot of different things that go into that. Uh, there are things from Kleinert's protocol with, uh, with rubber bands to a Duran protocol, which is a place and hold kind of protocol, to an early active protocol. And, there, um, and these, a lot of them depend on patient compliance, their access to therapy, um, and, uh, and your comfort with your repair. Um, but I would say in general, you start with a passive range of motion protocol. So you would start by moving the finger passively, have them in a position, a resting position, and have them passively flexing and extending the finger. Um, as the edema goes down, uh, because the work of flexion is increased by edema uh, pretty substantially, <clears throat> so your risk of adhesion and gapping go up with swelling. So you want to decrease the amount of swelling, keep the passive range of motion. <clears throat> Once you get there, somewhere between two to three weeks, you can start doing some more limited active motion. Uh, usually at six weeks, I take them out of a splint. So at six weeks, I feel comfortable enough to let them start doing some, some gentle passive, some gentle active motion. And then if they, if they build up a lot of scar, we actually will start moving them a little bit more quickly. Um, if you look at some of the diagrams, um, the tendon repair, the weakest time in the tendon is about three weeks post-op. Uh, so that's the time period where you have to be most careful. So it's not that not right after surgery, it's right after that first post-op visit. So you have to be really careful and have your therapist be careful as well at that time period because just a little bit of gapping results in more adhesion, which results in uh, lack of tendon gliding. So, um, so that's kind of that. I mean, I think flexor tendons are difficult for people who don't have therapy. If you don't have access to therapy, um, you're almost destined to have adhesion. And so, um, so it's, it's a tough, it's a tough road for someone who doesn't have access to therapy. Absolutely. And, um, as far as complications, I know you, you've mentioned adhesions is, you know, can be an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, but also how often do you see actual re-rupture of the tendon, uh, yeah. in your experience? Uh, so the times that I see re-rupture are the times when compliance is in question. Um, the, uh, the majority of the time, I feel like if we have a good repair uh, and they go to therapy and, and people toe the line, re-rupture rates are low. Uh, you can see some gapping occasionally, and that may be a reason for adhesion. But a lot of my scenarios are basically um, people who form scar quickly they get tendon adhesions, and even though we're able to kind of work through it some, they can't get full excursion of the tendon. Uh, the most common scenario is if, if the finger's in full extension, they can flex the DIP joint. But if you flex the PIP, they get no flexion at the DIP. And that's because you have limited excursion of the tendon. So the tendon's intact, but there's limited excursion. Um, those are scenarios where we start talking about tenolysis, but we usually wait to about six months for that. Uh, the reason for waiting so long is because you want the, the repair to be as mature as possible. If you go in and do a tenolysis on, the, on a repair that's immature, your risk of rupture is high. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
So we delay it for that reason uh, to that point. Make sure there's full passive range of motion. Make sure that the, the wound and the, the, the joints are supple as well as the wounds are supple. Um, and then tenolysis can be effective. Um, it's, um, it's always a lot more dissection than you think. Uh, you always feel like, oh, I'll just make a little opening and run a freer in there and free it up and it moves fine. Right. It's never like that. There's adhesion to bone, there's adhesion to the tendon, there's adhesion to the skin, there's adhesion to the sheath. So there are a number of different areas where you get adhesion that, uh, that have to be kind of freed up in order to get that mobility. Perfect. Uh, and, and so do you have anything else that, you know, before we wrap up here in a second, do you have anything else that you feel like listeners, you know, should know or, you know, any high points that you think listeners should take away when we speak about, you know, flex and tendon injuries? I think this was a, a good talk and a lot of good information was 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 uh, was given. Uh, and I know it helped me out already. So I know it's going to help other people out as well. But do you have any. Uh, any go-to or any high-yield points you definitely want people to remember from listening to this talk? So I think the take-homes are uh, tenodesis. So you want to look for tenodesis and resting tone at the, at the time of injury. Other take-homes are if there's an associated nerve injury and you have, an, have a repair of the nerve injury. If you have tension on the nerve repair, you need to do something different. So, um, so, the finger will be in full flexion because of the tendon repair. So if you do the nerve repair with the finger in full flexion and there's tension, when they start to extend the finger, that repair is gonna fall apart. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at eight-o suture trying to hold together a nerve, that's gonna fall apart. So those are scenarios where either nerve grafts or nerve tubes or nerve conduits are important to use because you don't want any tension on your repair the nerve doesn't heal across that. Um, so that's something to keep in mind in your rehab as well. Um, you have to articulate very well the type of repair and the type of protocol that you would like to have when you speak to your therapist. Um, you never know what you're going to get sometimes because patients are going to go see a therapist close to home and you have no idea if that therapist is somebody who knows anything about what you need. Um, <laughs> So you have to be as clear as possible about what you did in surgery and also what you want them to do, because otherwise they'll do what they know. Uh, and that may not necessarily be in the best interest of you or the patient. So, um, so those are, those are really valuable take homes is the patient's home environment, their therapy environment, their resources. Um, and those help you kind of manage the way that you're going to manage that patient. Um, also have the discussion about, about possibilities of adhesion up front. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have that discussion up front, then to them it's a failed surgery. Okay, so um, so if you say we're going to do this repair, you know, two out of ten people might need a second surgery because the tendons may stick together after the repair. At least they know that's a possibility. Right. That, so that when you have that discussion, you can say, like we talked about before, sometimes this happens. Fortunately, the next surgery is a lot easier recovery. We can get you moving quickly. You're not in that crazy splint again like you were before. You can get back to work once your stitches are out, et cetera, et cetera. So those are, you have to have a lot of discussion. Um, don't make any real decisions in the emergency room. <clears throat> when a patient comes in and they have an injury in the emergency room, particularly one like that, that's not the time point to say, you're going to need surgery. You're going to miss all this time. You're going to do all this stuff because 
Um, you never know what comes about a week later when they go to clinic. You never know what changes between the time they leave the emergency room and the time they show up to clinic. So, um, so those are times just to mitigate the damage, clean everything up, and kind of get them the appropriate follow-up. Outside of that, I think the repair techniques are always variable. You'll see different types. Um, core stitches with epitendinous stitches have, have a, a, a pretty standard success rate. Um, the, uh, the type of incision, uh, whether it's a Bruner incision uh, or a uh, mid-lateral incision are somewhat dealer dependent as well. Um, uh, the key is you don't want to make a straight midline incision. That's, uh, that's one that heals poorly and results in fleshing contractures. Mm. Um, you always want to make an angle at a joint. So just like the wrist joint, you want to make an angle, you make an angle at all the finger joints as well. Um, and, uh, and the keys with those is that fingers heal really well. So as long as you have coverage on the tendon itself, even if the wound is open on the sides, they heal excellent. Fingers look horrible, but they can, like if you have a, a nail bed injury, you guys don't see those in follow-up. We see them in follow-up all the time. <laughs> you and you're like, oh, the repair looked pretty good. And then they come back and that thing is like stuck to all the gauze that you use to wrap it up. And it takes an hour to take the dressing off. <laughs> and then it looks horrible and they think their fingernail is never going to grow back. And, you know, six months later, their finger looks pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Get um, manicures all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think those are things to take home, you know, um, you know, reinforcing kind of those fundamentals, um, but also kind of the things that, that I think residents don't see are the follow-ups, the protocols, the outcomes. How mm -hmm. do you get from A to B? You know, I think you guys focus on the anatomy, you focus on the presentation, you focus on the diagnosis, uh, and then you say, oh, we're going to do surgery, you know, and then you get to surgery and you're like, all right, we did this surgery. And then that kind of ends for you at that point. <clears throat> so unless you go into hand surgery, you don't know like what six weeks looks like. You don't mm -hmm. know what 12 weeks looks like from reflexive tendon repair. You don't know what things look like when they're not going well, you know, like you kind of, if you just happen to rotate through a service and see it, you might see it, but a lot of times you might not. Um, and so those are the take homes. I think as you get further along in training, um, you want to know kind of what the end game is for people. <clears throat> At what point do people actually get better? At what point do they actually return to function? Because uh, those aren't the things that are in the test. Those aren't in the books. Those are the things that you get kind of from experience and from kind of picking the brains of the people that are doing it. So, uh, you just drop a lot of a lot of gems right there. I think that was uh, that was money. It really was some of the most important part stuff of the the whole talk. Um, um, like the the whole thing, like you said, they might go to a, a, a physical therapist who don't even know what they're doing, and they might totally wreck up your whole you know your whole surgery and that's something you don't even think about as an intern and you you know like i had this case i had the same case earlier today we put in a dorsal block and you know she went on home uh who's to say she don't go to a physical therapist and 
you know, he just stretched right on out and boom, you know, <laughs> yeah. you got a problem. So, yeah. uh, wow, that was really, that was really amazing. Just kind of listening to all that, just kind of seeing the attending side versus the resident side is really, really good to hear that. Cause that's something we don't think about as much, but we definitely should. I, I, I try to think that far, but sometimes when you, you know, six consoles deep, you just kind of, yeah. You kind of lose lose thought sometimes. <laughs> but, um, but before we go, you know, I, I would like to say thank you so much, Dr. Dak, because I actually think this was a, a, a great talk. Uh, we, we actually write down notes before these and kind of read different uh, sources. And I, I think you just about hit on every topic that we had on your own without any, any you know, guidance from us. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, you did a very great job. Uh, but before we go, we always like to give our – speakers a way to kind of build their own uh, continue to build their brand and if you would like is there any way that our listeners can contact you either social media or uh through your 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 uh university's website or anything like that uh so you know um i think um the the fundamental thing i'm the program director at university of virginia so Mm -hmm. if anyone's interested in our program or me um the, the UVA Ortho website is a pretty easy way to find this. Um, you know, uh, the UVA Hand Center has a, uh, has a Facebook page, um, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, kind of shows random things that, that Hand Center Facebook pages might show. Right. Um, but, um, you know, I think a lot of the things are, you know, I, I try and be visible at, at, at Gladden Luncheon. Um, we try and, uh, we try and uh, work through Nth Dimension. Uh, with uh, one of my partners, Eric Carson. Uh, so th- th- those are a lot of ways for people to kind of find me per se. Um, I don't have a big social media imprint um, I, uh, for a number of reasons, um, but um, but you like to keep it personal. I, I completely understand. You know, it's uh, you know, it's just uh, yeah, it's just it can take up a lot of your time, and um, you know, um, I think uh, that's. That's that's what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say is, though, if uh, if you guys feel like you want me to come back at any time, let me know. Oh, it'd be uh, happy. I, I enjoyed this. Uh, you know, I, this this is why I do what I do. You know, I like to be able to talk to uh, to young, interested people who um, who really kind of want to learn a little bit. And so, um, you know, I don't know everything, but I know a little bit. Yeah, so you know a lot more than me. <laughs> So, absolutely um so yeah i mean i'm uh i'm definitely open to that so uh, you know there's there's so much to do with hand surgery that um mm-hmm. you know i could talk to you every day for a month and still have <laughs> things to talk about so um so yeah i think from that end um yeah uh anytime y'all need me let me know perfect absolutely really sir and before i just want to say again thank you so much for this talk i actually think it was great when i say i just saw all this stuff uh, you know, maybe three hours ago, I'm just coming out the case not too long ago, and you touched it all. Uh, to all our listeners, I want to say thank you all for listening, and I hope you all picked up some good hints on this one. A uh, hand call is just a day away. Plastics can't always take it. It's coming to you. <laughs> all right, y'all have a good day. Thank you. Take care. Uh-